What is up, everybody? My name is Jesse, and you are listening to List It, my podcast where we rank and list things in pop culture. And I'm really excited about the show today because I have with me a radio legend. You will know him as the senior editor and the host of the long-running public radio show Marketplace, a staple in my life, honestly, since I can remember driving around uh, uh, after work with my dad and still a huge part of my life. Also, he co-hosts the incredible podcast uh, Make Me Smart along with Molly Wooden, lives up to the name. I can't wait to talk uh, uh, today to Kai Rizdahl about his favorite interviews that he's ever conducted. That's, that's, a, slightly, that's a slightly terrifying setup, man. I got to tell you. <laughs> I got, I get, you probably get this a lot, uh, all the time, but it's we, we're talking on Zoom. We can see each other. And yeah. hearing your voice and, and seeing your face, how often do you get voice recognized or people just stop you in the street and be like, wait, I know this voice. Not infrequently, not <laughs> infrequently, and uh, and and you know it's always nice, right? I mean, it's always nice. Yeah. And how how often do you get people to say, "Can you say it? Can you say this is marketplace?" Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they say it. They ask me all the time, and my response is, "I'm sorry, it's not a toy. I don't do it for me. Uh, <laughs> I, I only when duty calls." I, I don't blame you. And it's a, it's a daily duty, man. You you talk to a lot of people every single day, and I feel like during kind of this, the, especially this last like year and a half that we've been in, kind of uncertain times with the pandemic, and obviously a lot of people have a lot of different concerns. You know. Yeah. They're very valid with with public health and things like that. But what I love about Marketplace is you, you can look at big problems through the lens of economics. And, I, and before we get into the interviews that, that you've done yeah. over the years, why is economic reporting something that you wanted to kind of dedicate your career to? Oh, well, it's actually funny you ask, because I, I, uh, I am not an economics guy. I've never taken an economics course. It is not, you know, when we used to get the New York Times in hard copy, uh, the business section was not the first thing I turned to, right? Um, I'm a history and political science guy. Um, I've got a background in national security in the military and working at the Pentagon and the State Department. Um, uh, but, but Marketplace called about 20 years ago, in fact, 20 years ago this summer, and asked me if I wanted to come work for them. And I said, sure. And so I learned economics really fast. But but look, here's the deal. Um, economics affects everything in our lives, mm. truly. The economic forces that are at work in the global economy and in the American economy affect our daily lives. Um, and if we don't understand it, it's going to bite us in the ass. Yeah. Um, don't look any farther back than 10 years ago in the financial crisis. Um, don't look any farther back than a year and a half ago when the pandemic hit and this economy came to a screeching halt, right? Um, so that's our job every day at Marketplace is to help people understand not only what is happening, but why and how it affects them. And 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 that's what I, that's what I enjoy doing. It's really interesting the the approach that you guys take on a daily basis. Obviously, there is a portion of the show where you do do the numbers, but the show, you know, a lot of people, I think their association with economics is it's dollars and cents, it's numbers, it's interest rate and percentages. But the great thing about Marketplace is it's really about human stories and it's looking at the economy through the lens of of people's lives. How do you kind of filter those stories to, because a lot of people look at the macro and go to micro, but you guys are going micro yeah. to illustrate the macro. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting. This list of interviews that you're going to get here, there's only one really micro interview on it. And that's a little bit intentional. And also it's because I got a little bit behind and, and, and came up with this list at five o'clock this morning, but that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but the truth is, 
Um, we try to take both perspectives, right? There is a lot you can learn by talking to the movers and shakers in this economy and then helping people understand how the decisions get made. But I agree with your basic point that it is by talking to regular everyday people that you can understand the forces I was talking about and how that matters and why it matters. Um, and, and that's what we try to do. You know, I mean, I, I do way more regular person interviews, whether it's our hog farmer in, in Illinois or the guy I'm going to tell you about in Greece. I mean, I do way more of those than I do of, of heavy hitters. Yeah. You know, that's just the way the numbers work out. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the list, Kai. What do you yeah. have? What do you have here? And, and I don't know if you ranked them by uh, five to one as your favorites or if it's kind of uh, uh, just the, the, t- the five here. Uh, I went, uh, uh, that's a good question. I think it's just the five. These are not rank order. Yeah. Uh, so we can, I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just do them in the order I thought of them. Yeah. Um, and I apologize it. for whatever, I apologize for whatever dog snuffling noises you hear, but my golden just walked into the studio. Hey, here, so. No problem at all. So, no problem so that's at all. what we get. Uh, okay. So the first thing that, that came to my mind was an interview I did uh, in the spring of 2018, okay. which was the 10-year anniversary of the beginning of the worst of the financial crisis. Um, and it was an hour that I spent with Hank Paulson, who was Secretary of the Treasury uh, during the financial crisis, uh, Timothy Geithner, who was the head of the New York Fed, and then the Treasury Secretary uh, during the financial crisis, and Ben Bernanke, who was the head of the Federal Reserve during the crisis. Um, and we got them uh, it, it was, as they say in television, a world exclusive. It was the first joint interview they'd done on the financial crisis in 10 years. Mm. And so we went up to, they were doing some symposium at Yale, I guess. And so we went up to Yale um, and I sat down with them for uh, an hour and we went soup to nuts, beginning to end the financial crisis. And, and the thing that makes it stand out in my mind is, is uh, two, there are two things. Number one is the amount of studying I had to do for that interview. Mm. Um, I've been doing this a long time. If I can't just sit down and do an interview with, I don't know, the secretary of the treasury cold, I shouldn't have my job. Um, but this interview was like getting ready for this interview was like studying for a final exam for a course you took 10 years ago. Hmm. You know, I was asking them about things that had happened in 2008, 10 years on. And it was, and it was a little tricky, but, um, uh, so that was, that was the first reason it stood out. And then the second reason it stood out was I'm going to blow my own horn here. It was in my mind, almost a perfect interview. Hmm. It had, it had a narrative arc. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It had points of tension and confrontation. It was really just objectively, it was just interesting yeah. um, to hear these three guys talk about it and the rationale for some of the decisions they made that they got just clobbered for, yeah. right? For, for saving the banks and not letting it all burn down and all of that stuff. Um, so that was it. That's number one on the list. It's, it's, we call them the big three in 2018. Now, now, you know, whenever you interview someone, especially in person, you, even though it's kind of a, um, and it's an interesting sort of relational dynamic with interviews, but you still manage to get a sense of someone's person, even if it's only for a few minutes. And there are few people who can directly impact the lives of more people, especially in this country than those three individuals, just by a snap of a finger, almost literally. Did you get the sense that they carry that kind of weight of man, what we're doing oh, yeah. will dramatically affect almost every person in this country. Yeah, for sure. They were deeply aware of it. Uh, and they've said that in their writings and they said this uh, in the interview. Um, but you're right about the in-person thing, right? Because that changes the dynamic of an interview. I mean, this interview, even if, even though we're, you know, on a zoom and, yeah. you know, nominally face to face, 
it would be different if we were sitting there, uh, you know, across the table from each other. And, and I think it was really good that I didn't wind up doing that in the era of Zoom because that interview would not have, it wouldn't work. It would yeah. be terrible, actually. Yeah. You well, I, I don't, I, I rarely get stressed out about interviews. I would be super stressed out if I had to interview those three guys in yeah, person. It was so. stressful. It was pretty stressful. All right. So what do you got for, for number four on your list, guy? So the, the next one up is actually probably the most stress I've ever felt doing an interview. Okay. And it was the first time, the first time I talked to president Obama, Okay, uh, in, uh, in, uh, the fall of 2012, he was on a campaign swing. And, and what happened was that we got a call from the white house on like a Tuesday morning that said, listen, if you can be in Las Vegas by one o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday, you can have 15 minutes with president Obama. Uh, and we said, of course. So we, you know, went crazy for 48 hours. Uh, this is the first interview with a president that Marketplace had ever had. Obviously, my first interview with the president. And we had 48 hours to get ready for it. We did a little brainstorming. Everybody and their grandma had thoughts about what I have to ask him and what I'm going to do and this and that. And, and I'm like, I've got 15 minutes. Yeah. Shut up. Just leave me alone. Right. There, there came a point in the prep where I just walked out of the room. Um, uh, but the the reason it was it was stressful beyond that was that it wasn't like we showed up at a conference room and there was Obama. The interview was going to take place in a, he was doing a, a tour on energy policy. Um, and he was doing a speech at a solar, not a solar plant, but in a field full of solar panels, okay. like acres and acres and acres of solar panels just outside Las Vegas. Um, and we were going to do the interview there. Uh, and so there was, the circumstances were a little little dicey. And also we were trying to get the interview. It was like one o'clock in the afternoon at LA time. We were, we go to air at two o'clock LA time. So we were going to get that interview back to LA on the satellite within an hour. Wow. And it was, it was going to be a little tricky. Um, uh, and so what happened was the white house advanced people put us in a, in a spot sort of away from the rest of the white house press school. So we get there, our engineers setting up and there's a long line of limousines. Um, Actually, they were SUVs, right? Because he's out, not in, in a city. But there's a long line of SUVs, like three or four SUVs. And we're sitting at the back end of them. So I sort of couldn't see the approaches to the interview site. And all of a sudden, I hear Obama coming around the corner saying, all right, what do we got here? And so I stood up to greet him. Um, and, and the weirdest thing happened because we had been going through the prep and I had my list of questions memorized. And I've only got 15 minutes and don't screw it up. And oh, my God, and this and that. And I got up and I, I walked around the corner of the last SUV and he had his hand out and I reached out to shake his hand and, and the tension and the stress just evaporated. It was the weirdest uh. thing. Literally, it just went and it went away. Um, and, and we chit-chatted for a little while. I tittle, told him a, a, a little thing about my daughter that made him laugh. And then we sat down and did the interview. And the interview was fine, right? I mean, you know, Obama and and anybody in that office is going to spin whatever he wants, however he wants to do it, and you're just going to have to roll with yeah. it. And you push him a little bit and whatever. Um, but it was it was the stress of it that really uh, I remember like to this day. It was crazy, yeah. just crazy. It, he does seem like the type, you know, the public perception at least. No matter what you think of his politics, is he's a cool customer. Did that translate when you're kind of yeah, sitting down it, face to face? So yeah. So what happened was our engineer was not ready for it. He actually showed up early, Obama did. Okay. And we had told the White House advance guys, we need 10 minutes to get up to the satellite and, and get this stuff going. And they said, okay, great, we'll do it. And Obama shows up with like four minutes to go in the 10 minutes. And, and my engineer, Jeff Peters, just wasn't ready. Yeah. We just we hadn't gotten the gear right. And so we sat down and shot the breeze. And he took it was 
I mean, it was like September in the desert outside Vegas. It was hot as all get out. He took his suit coat off. I took my suit coat off. We sat there and we talked for a little while and shot the breeze. And then we got going. And of course, what happens is as soon as you turn the microphone on, he's the president. Yeah. You know, and so he becomes more boring, honestly, and considered and all of that stuff. But when the mic's off, he's a very much a regular guy. You know, it, it, you've been doing this for a really long time and, uh, you know, now you're, you know, involved in podcasting too. One th- thing I've noticed as podcasting has sort of gotten, has a higher degree of prominence in sort of the zeitgeist. You'll see someone like a President Obama sit in Mark Maron's garage and kind of, right. have you seen that line between the chit chat in the interview start to blur since podcasting has sort of taken off? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I think there's a sensibility difference that you hear uh, on all the really good podcasts. Um, and by good, I mean, you know, conversational, personality-driven, all of those things, not not the ones that are are trying to be, you know, newsy, right? And, yeah. and look, I listen to The Daily with Michael Barbaro all the time, but I cannot imagine that Michael Barbaro is like he is on that show yeah. in real life. I, yeah. You know, come on, right? And, 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 I think, and I think that's the differentiator, you know, is that people understand, certainly in, in the land of public radio, you know, you don't have to be all buttoned down on a podcast. You can just talk and people really appreciate that. Yeah. That, that I, you know, I've had the chance to interview like Ira Glass a couple of times over the years. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I feel like he's like one of the voices you think of when you think of public radio. For sure. And it was interesting. It was like, I, I was, and I was the one conducting the interview and I was asking myself, has the interview even started yet? Because he's, yeah. he's just, you know, there's an interesting dynamic that I feel like has really changed the way people not only conduct interviews, but listen to them. And it's really interesting that you kind of experience both with that President Obama interview yeah. when the mic's yeah. on and when the mic's off. I, I think that's totally right. I think that's totally right. All right. So what do you got for uh, number three for us, Guy? Uh, middle of the list. Here we go. So uh, in 2014, we did a series of live events across the country, a series of road shows um, uh, that was called uh, How We Learn to Stop Worrying and Love the Numbers. Just talking about marketplace behind the scenes and how we use economic data and numbers to tell relevant stories and to make life um, uh, kind of make sense a little bit. Uh, and we did one at the 92nd Street Y in New York City, and we had uh, Hank Azaria and Nora Ephron live on stage with us. And I did an interview with Misty Copeland, who's a ballerina, uh, principal dancer at uh, the American Ballet Theater. She is also a Black woman, the first Black woman to have that position. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a really interesting and difficult upbringing down in Long Beach, actually, Um, Parents didn't have enough money to pay for dance lessons. I mean, a a whole long story. Uh, But the reason we had her on was in addition to um, her economic background and her race, which make her unusual in her field, she doesn't fit the numerical profile of a ballerina. And we had this conversation on stage at the 92nd Street Y about how her bust is too big and her shoulders are too wide and her hips are too big. And, and this is a woman who is a world renowned ballerina. And I just, I put that on the list because it, it reminded me of how important it is to try to find context in indicators that are sort of counterintuitive. Right. Mm. Um, And if you look for things where they're not, um, maybe you can learn a little something. And and also, she's such a great talk. She yeah. was just super interesting. Now, anytime you have those type of, those are the type of conversations that we'll typically only have in, in interview sessions. Like generally, conversations about race, about body imagery, about, you know, gender dynamics and gender politics. Those aren't typically the things that, you know, if you're kind of chatting it up with somebody at, at the bar or just kind right. of hanging out that, that come up. 
How difficult do you find it? Because I listen, I'm a marketplace listener and you will push back on people. And how difficult is that for you to, to kind of not be confrontational, but talk about things that people might find a little uncomfortable? So that, that's a really interesting question. And I'm going to, I'm going to sort of bend the rules a little bit here and throw an interview in here that, that I originally crossed off the list. Um, so with people who are in positions of power, responsibility, or authority, public officials or corporate officials, it's really easy to do. Yeah. It's, it's my job. Yeah. Right. That that's not hard, but the art of the deal is when it gets into softer territory, uh, using a little common sense. And, I, and I'll, I'll give you my example. So in 2006, one year after I got this job, uh, as part of a series we do with me interviewing CEOs, we went up to Napa uh, in California and I talked to Joseph Gallo who of the Gallo winery family, mm-hmm. right? Ernst and Julio Gallo, yeah. the whole day. We've all seen those commercials. He was an old guy. Um, uh, and we had an interview and this and that, and it was fine. Absolutely nothing remarkable about it still to me to this day, except this thing. His uncle, some number of years ago, had committed suicide. And that changed the family business. Not in a, in a truly germane way, but it changed the way the family went about doing what it did. Uh, and so through the course of this interview, and remember, this guy's like, he was like 80, yeah. right? Um, and I asked him about the suicide. And he just froze. And he looked at his press person and the press person looked at me. And then I looked back at Mr. Gallo and it was clear this was not something he wanted to talk about. Great shame in the family about it. Yeah. Whatever. Um, and, I, and I legitimately felt bad about that because number one, it wasn't going to make the final cut of the interview. I kind of knew that. Yeah. And number two, why bring this up to this old man? Yeah. You know? Um, and, and so that's what I remember about that interview. It, it's not about asking the hard questions. It's about asking the right questions and, and not asking questions that, that don't matter. Yeah. And, and I, and I, cause I, I was in a similar situation with, a, I won't even get into the circumstance, but it was a celebrity who I knew something was kind of not something that they wanted to talk about, but I felt some journalistic responsibility to address it because of the nature mm-hmm. of the conversation we're having. And, right. you know, you know, how do you kind of find that balance between being human and looking for the human connection, but also like some of the stuff you got to ask because it is your job. Yep. So that's, that's totally right. And, and the only answer I can give you is you got to play it by ear and you have to think about where you are in the moment. Is it relevant? Uh, do people need to know this? Um, and, and then you, you decide from there. It, it's also interesting. I, and you mentioned this at the top of the show that you are a military veteran. You served in, in, in the United States Navy. Thank you for your service. I, I live in Virginia beach and, uh, uh, oh, yeah. born in I was, Norfolk. I was in, I was in Norfolk. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. Uh, so my grant, I work with a handful of all my, a lot of my neighbors are Navy SEALs. I help produce some yeah. podcasts for some Navy SEAL guys and you worked at the Pentagon and you know, that profession requires a degree of sort of pragmatism and sort of detachment from anything other than just kind of the facts and data and really understanding the outcome of circumstances, how much did your military background and, and background in sort of the intelligence community kind of inform your, uh, your sort of process as a journalist? Uh, so look, I think a couple of things, first of all, obviously the sense of discipline that I have in my life comes directly from the eight years I spent in the service. Um, no question about that. Uh, but I think also it gives me, a, a broader base of context within two 
within which to put my work and and how I approach things, right? Um, It is about what matters. It is about what the final product is, and it is about um, delivering. But within that, I, I think it's about how you get from here to there, right? I mean, there are things you have to do in military aviation. You, you can't cut any corners, uh, whether it's you know checklists or flight training or what have you. Um, and, and I think I, I I I still carry that somehow. I don't know. It's been a long time, right? I mean, yeah. I got out of the service in in uh, ninety three, so yeah. you know, it's been a while. One more question about, you know, as it pertains to the Miss Lee Copeland interview. Yeah. And I think this is something that a lot of interviewers and particularly not just in the interview setting, but in kind of just the editor setting is some responsibility to highlight and give platform to voices that, you know, maybe traditionally have been more marginalized. And whether that is women in media, people of color, you know, or someone like Missy, who's a person of color in a field yeah. that is, you know, people like her have been traditionally underrepresented. What yeah. kind of responsibility do you feel as sort of just a, a journalist and someone who's in people's ear every day to make an effort to find that balance that you're elevating those voices, but still kind of maintaining a relevance to audience audiences who might, that might be outside of their everyday life? Right. So the deal is that the marketplace audience is something like 78% white, right? It's way upper middle class. It's highly educated, all of that stuff. It is absolutely my responsibility to use the platform that I have, whether it's uh, on the podcast that I do with Molly, whether it's the show, which is obviously the biggest audience, whether it's my social feed, um, to introduce to people things that are going to make them think about the world around them. Um, and and look, the last year and a half is possibly the best example. Bringing to light um, the systemic economic racism in this country uh, in a way that make it's going to make people consider it. I, I absolutely have that responsibility. No yeah. question. Yeah. All right, Kai, we got uh, number two. Well, not technically number yeah, two, this, but, this, but, but this is the, yeah, yeah, we're down to two. Order. Yeah, yeah we're, down, we're, we're down, down, we're down, yeah, we're down yeah, to two. Yeah, yeah. Um, so about six years ago, I went to New York City and sat down with the CEO of Marriott, a guy by the name of Ernst. Um, and we had a great chat. It was, you know, uh, a, a better than average interview with a big corporate CEO, all, all of which is fine. Um, and we both went on our merry way. And then in March of last year, just as the pandemic was starting and travel was shutting down and hotels were shutting down and we were all locking ourselves inside our houses, um, Arnie Sorensen, the CEO of one of the biggest hotel companies in the world, uh, sent out a video um, in which he laid out what the company is going to do, how they're going to take care of people and this is terrible, but we're going to get through it. The reason I, I bring it up is because in that interview, we learned that Arnie Sorensen had stage four pancreatic cancer. Mm. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it was pancreatic, but it was, it was, it was a, it was one of the cancers where if you're at stage four, you're, you're done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And he, and he looked it. he was drawn, he was yellowed. He, he had no hair. And he also in this video broke down a couple of times. Mm. And so I saw it and, and I, said to my producer, listen, we, we got to get Arnie back on the air. And, um, and so we called him and we, we talked about Marriott and the corporate stuff and all of that. And I asked him about the video and, and him breaking down in it. And um, he said, you know, we, we did like three takes. And finally, I just walked out. I broke down on every single one. Mm-hmm. I just walked out and I said to the guys, use whichever one you want. Yeah. Um, 
And then I asked him if he was scared. And I let it hang there because was he scared of dying? Was he scared of the pandemic? Was he scared from Marriott? You know, what was he scared about? I, I just left it sort of amorphous. Um, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm not. We'll figure this out. We'll get through it. It's going to be really hard. Mm. Um, but I'm not. And, and it, was a, it was a moment of hope in a, in a really scary time from a guy who literally was dying. Yeah. Um, and it just, it stuck with me and, and, uh, sad to say that Ernie Sorensen died about, um, late last year, maybe nine, 10 months ago. Mm. Um, so yeah. So it's, it's about, um, it's about letting people just be on the air. You know, it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty emotional little interview. Yeah. And, And I think one of the, the cool things about listening to interviews or conducting them is ultimately you get, to experience someone else's perspective that otherwise mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't be able to. And as someone who has done a ton of interviews, you know, not just in your career, but particularly throughout this pandemic, and you've got to hear a lot of different perspectives from very, very powerful people to kind of like you were saying at, at the beginning of the show, the, the hog farmer who's trying to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. Have you been less, you know, you get this wide swath of humanity that you're interacting with. As so, and that's pretty unique these days. A lot of people are kind of isolated, just people in their communities or their churches or their workplaces or wherever. But with this, getting all these perspective, have you been left more optimistic or kind of more nervous about the outcome of everything? That's a really, really good question. And, and uh, you know, there was, a, there was a point, obviously, and I'm sure you had the same feeling where it was day to day. One day you're like, yeah, we'll get through it. And the next day you're like, I can't live like this forever. Um I think I am fundamentally optimistic, but with with deep concern about um, our uh, society and the divisions in it and, and what that's going to mean once we're done with this, because we can all concentrate now on the pandemic and the Delta variant and all of that and 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 be able to sublimate the really deep divides in this country, aside from masking and all that jazz, yeah. right? There's there's stuff beyond that. Um, I think once we don't have the pandemic to occupy our minds anymore, I think that's going to become a really big problem. Yeah. Bigger problem. But I, I will say to to your credit and a lot of people who are on the forefront of of you know being able to conduct a lot of these interviews, you know, social media has been really toxic for the ability for people <laughs> to dialogue. But yeah. good interviews, I feel like, have the ability to kind of slice through partisanship because good interviewers can kind of extract some humanity from people that might get lost in text from a tweet. Do you, do you kind of see that too? Yeah. I think the, the key factor there is the luxury of time, right? Like you and I are going to wind up spending half an hour on this, um, talking it through and uh, you know, you you can't, you can't make a tweet last half an hour. Right. Um, and and nobody's going to sit and, you know, watch Facebook for half an hour while they're, while they're walking their dogs. Right. But that's what people are going to do with this interview which is great and it's good, but we all need mental headspace to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think that's the challenge. Yeah. All right, Kai, final selection on your right. list. So here's, here's the, the one real human being. And, and as I said, um, I do way more real people than I ever do uh, the heavy hitters. Um, so five years ago, six years ago now, uh, this summer, the Greek debt crisis was the economic story in the world, right? Yeah. Greece was going under mismanagement, corruption. The Europeans were thinking about throwing Greece out of the European Union and, you know, all of this big global macroeconomic stuff. And I woke up uh, one Friday morning and as I was shaving, I said, I'm not just doing the studio, this show from the studio anymore. I'm going to Greece. So I walked in and I said to my producer, we're going to Greece. Let's leave on Monday. And 
it act, amazingly enough, it actually worked. Yeah. So so we get to Greece and we meet uh, our London correspondent, Stephen Beard in Athens, and he's been on the ground for an extra day. And so he's met some people. And one of the people he met that he introduced me to was a guy by the name of Spiros Koliviatis. And he owns a flower shop underneath the parliament building in Syntagma Square, which is the main square yeah. in Athens. Um, and so we went one day as the deal to keep Greece in the European Union was announced. And, and we had a really good conversation about, um, about a lot of things, about his flower business, about the Greek people and the Greek economy, but about um, fighting for something you believe in. Mm. And, and his last line to me was, you know, I, I believe this will work not because of my mind, but because of my heart. Mm. Um, and, and that to me just stuck. And it's all about it's all about real people and, and how they think, right? And one of the things we say on the program all the time, I haven't said it in a while, actually, but maybe I'll say it this afternoon, is um, all the economic headlines in the world are great, but if people aren't feeling it in their daily lives, then it doesn't even matter, mm. right? If you know the unemployment rate falls to 3%, but you're still out of a job, you don't care, right? If the consumer price index is only a tenth of a percent, but you got to pay four bucks for gas today, where it was 350 a week ago, you don't care. Um, and, and that's really just to circle back to where we started, right? The mission that marketplace has is raising people's economic intelligence, making them smart about what's happening and why. Uh, and the best way for us to do that is to keep telling these stories, regular people, heavy hitters, take your pick. Yeah. It, do you, have you noticed the difference in, I, you know, the, the people like this individual who, have that spirit of, you know what, I'm, I don't know, I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I believe we can get through it. Right. You know, do you notice something different about those people and how they kind of either conduct themselves or conduct their business compared to, you know, I don't want to say people who are like defeatist, but the average person, a lot of times it's hard to muster that when circumstances look difficult. Look, I've done a whole bunch of interviews that went the other way, where after hearing uh, and talking to them for however many minutes the interview goes, and it sounds bleak. And I say, what are you going to do? And they say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. Right. And, and that's as real as I'm going to keep fighting, not with my mind, but with my heart. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I feel like in a way, and not to be overly poetic, because but that is sort of the, the story of a lot of it, it, economics is, you know, when the chips are down, people find a way and the economy tells the story of people finding a way, whether it's through, you know, the industrial revolution, the technical revolution, or just that nitty gritty person who's innovating because they're kind of backed into a corner. Right. Hopefully it ends up as kind of a beautiful story, like the ones you guys are able to tell, even though times like this, sometimes it's hard to see the forest from those trees. That is inspiring to me, at least to know that, look, man, this is this, the story of humanity told through economics is people figuring out because they got to, you know? There you go. Exactly. So that's the deal. You're hired. <laughs> well, Kai, this was so fun, man. I really enjoy the show. I can't wait Good to go deal. back and listen to some of these uh, uh, interviews, man. Thanks for taking the time to come on List It. You bet. Awesome. My pleasure. Good to do it. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of List It on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast has to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.